0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Lillian Fatterman, Professor Emerita at California State University, Fresno. An award-winning author, Dr. Fatterman, widely known as the mother of lesbian history, has authored many books on women, gender, and sexuality. In her new release entitled, Woman, the American History of an Idea, published by Yale University Press, Fadiman examines what it means to be a woman in America. He traces the evolution of the meaning from Puritan ideas of God's plan for women to the sexual revolution of the 1960s and its reversals to the impact of such recent events as Me Too, the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, the election of Kamala Harris as vice president, and the transgender movement. This long 400-year history chronicles conflicts, retreats, defeats, and hard-won victories in both the private and public sectors and shines light on the often-overlooked battle of enslaved women and women leaders in tribal nations. Noting that every attempt to cement a particular definition of woman has met resistance, Fatiman shows that successful challenges to the status quo are often short-lived. The idea of womanhood in America continues to be contested. Here is my conversation with Lillian Fatterman. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Thank you for having me here. First, before we get into the book and the ideas that you're talking about, can you tell us something about why you wrote this book, how you came to write this book? We know that you've written a lot about gender, women, and sexuality, but why specifically this book at this time?
1: This has been a subject that's interested me for years, and I've actually been collecting material around the subject. It started, as I say in the introduction, with uh, my thinking about my my childhood and my youth and just remembering what the concept of woman was in, in the 1950s and how little I fit into the concept. And so I, I start the book with a story of myself and my classmates. I grew up in uh, East Los Angeles, which was primarily a Mexican-American neighborhood in those days. And a lot of my classmates were pachucas. They were gang girls. And they dressed so differently from the way you were supposed to dress in the 1950s with the Dior image of uh, ultra-femininity with twirly skirts They wore short, tight skirts and see-through nylon blouses and heavy makeup, and I was influenced by them, but even more than being influenced by their style, I identified with them because they were outside the pale of what woman was supposed to be like, according to what we saw on television, and I was outside the pale too, and yet we we suffered for it. We were expected to to fulfill that image, and there was no way that, that we could. Neither they, as uh, most of them, children of immigrants from Mexico, poor. I couldn't. Uh, I was a child of an immigrant, too. I was poor, too. But also I had already discovered my identity as a gay girl, as we said in those days. And what I understood was that I would never fit into what woman was supposed to be like any more than they would fit in. And so I've I've been thinking about my childhood and and what formed me. And I decided that I, I wanted to really write about that kind of thing. What, where did I get that idea of what woman was supposed to be like that I fell so far short of. And so I went back earlier in the 1950s and then, um, earlier in the 20th century. And, and I just kept moving back until I moved all the way back to the 17th century. <laughs> and, and what the, um, the, uh, Colonists saw when they came here, and how they didn't like what they saw, and so after I tell the story of of my childhood and and the uh, girls that I used to know as as a kid, and how we were different from uh, from woman as she was supposed to be, I go all the way back to the 17th century and I look at what it was the colonists saw, and I tell a story. Of uh, Roger Williams, who was very prominent among the colonists, um, who wrote a letter to the Governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop, and he talked about the uh, the terrible war that the colonists had had with the Pequot Indians in Connecticut. They decimated an Indian village and the Indians were ready to surrender, were ready to beg for peace. And the Pequots did what they had always done. They sent a woman to negotiate for peace. And Roger Williams wrote to uh, Governor Winthrop, we questioned her much as to her truth and we sent her away. That is, they they couldn't believe a woman would be a peace negotiator, would have a significant position in her tribe. And then the Pequots sent another woman and the same thing happened. They sent her away. And then finally the Pequots sent five women and an old man. And Roger Williams wrote, and this time we spoke to them. We spoke to the old man. They permitted the old man to negotiate for, for peace. Of course, it was a, a huge contrast from, from the colonist notion of woman And what it had been back in England was amplified so much more once they arrived in Massachusetts and uh, the other colonies. And I think it was amplified so much more because the colonists were so disoriented. They really had to control things. They were facing a howling wilderness and, and... A people that they didn't understand and that seemed so strange and and foreign, ironically, to them. And so all of their notions about woman that had been established in England and other parts of Europe were even amplified, even more so. And so a woman had to be uh, subjected to her husband, as they wrote. Woman could never be a quote rash rambler abroad. That is, she had to stay home. <laughs> Woman, um, uh, woman's main job was to, uh, as as one colonist wrote, to aid in the propagation of mankind. That is, she <laughs> she would assist in bringing children into the world by bearing the children, who of course belonged to the husband, not to her. Under the law, she had absolutely no jurisdiction of any kind. There were colonies where this was uh, modified. In in, uh, New Amsterdam, for instance, in the beginning, um, a woman was treated as she was in the Netherlands. She could be educated. She could own property in her own name. I talk about this fascinating woman who was the... uh, the, the first uh, American businesswoman, Margaret Hardenbrook, her name was, she bought real estate. She uh, had a fleet of ships that went back and forth across the Atlantic with an import and export business. Um, but then um, the British took over New Amsterdam, and it became New York. And she had married a man who was her assistant, and she became a femme couverte. Just as women were in the British colonies, that is to say, she had absolutely no jurisdiction over her money or her dwelling or her, uh, any kind of property, or herself. Uh, her husband had total jurisdiction over her own life.
0: You know what you're. Everything you're saying. Uh, I think what you said at, earlier when you were talking about you didn't feel like you fit into the ideal, the image of womanhood, I wonder, uh, you know, I'm an immigrant also from a different kind of culture and I wonder, how. and I never felt like I felt fit in either because of my personality and my, my particular interest in things. So it makes me wonder how many, what percentage of women actually fit that bottle, and whether most women are chafing under it. Most women are feeling
1: uncomfortable in what they've been given. Yes, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that few women fit the ideal. And nevertheless, the ideal had such a grasp on all of us. In in some cases, um, to make women strive to fit the ideal. In other cases, to make women feel that that they were outsiders, that that they were in conflict with... With the dominant culture, that there is no way that they would ever fit in; that they were, in effect, outlaws. And of course, through through the the decades in the twentieth century and in our era, you know, the the ideal was uh, constantly being modified, and yet we would go back to it. It would be the default position. I'm thinking, for instance, about um, in the 1920s, one-third of all college students were women. Women were moving into the task force uh, as as they never had before, into the labor force as they never had been before. Women were becoming far more independent than they had ever been before. And then the Depression happened, and they were sent back home, and they were convinced that home was where they belonged and that the jobs were supposed to be for men who had a family to support. And then World War II happened and they were convinced that they had to go back into the labor force. That is to say, they they had to to help in the war efforts by finding a job, by becoming, well, of course, the famous image of Rosie the Riveter and then the war was open. And again, the default notion of woman kicked in. The styles became very feminine, as I had talked about earlier. Women were convinced that a true woman doesn't want anything but a husband and and children and to take care of the home.
0: And what's interesting about that prescription is that it's very narrow because there's a lot of ways, and I've advocated for this, there's a lot of ways to have a marriage a lot of ways to be a mother uh there's not one model of motherhood there's so many different ways and so sometimes women can't mother the way they're told they're supposed to mother therefore it creates a lot of conflict uh internally yes i'm not good enough i'm failing my children i'm failing my husband because i'm not doing what i'm supposed to do and they reject themselves uh so I want to ask has the I know you talk about the changes about what it means womanhood means or what woman means do you believe that it always carries a negative connotation or do you think that there've been periods where woman was a positive thing
1: I I think that as long as it was imposed on women it was very difficult to meet the ideal and for women it it was for most women it was um a notion that reminded them of their inferiority reminded them that um that they had to strive for something that that was imposed not from within but from without
0: right and now there was a period of time when women were seen as sexually insatiable. And then they became passionless. No passion. So we've had this you know uh, what was that about? What what's your insight on that?
1: Well, uh, there was a period of time where where uh, as the puritans said all women are descended from Eve who was responsible for the fall. Of mankind, and therefore Adam had to redeem mankind, and part of that redemption had to be to to make sure that Eve stayed in her place, that Eve's voice was squelched. It it was fascinating to me to discover what happened after the United States was formed. It, men had to go about building a country. What was woman's role? in building a country. She was indeed given a role as I discovered and her role was to to make men better, to make them more moral. It was thought that, uh, as opposed to Eve, now it was thought that women didn't have these these natural drives that, that were often insatiable, that were uncontrollable. They had to teach men how to control themselves. Of course, the idea was they had to teach their sons how to control themselves. But a handful of women began to interpret that in, a, in another way, which became very interesting. They said, well, if, if women are morally superior to men, we have to make sure that, that we make not just our sons, but all men better. And so they started moral reform societies um, where they would uh, invade houses of prostitution and try to save the uh, sex workers, the women, and to shame the men. They, uh, they went to legislators and uh, uh, got legislatures to, to pass laws that uh, made the seduction of an innocent woman a crime punishable by jail and fines because they were morally superior to men supposedly they uh they said that that uh, uh drink alcohol has has destroyed the home and it was their right to run these temperance movements to invade uh saloons to to take a, a hatchet to the barrels of liquor we we all know of the uh, image of carry nation but uh, long before carry nation in the early 20th century There were these posses of women who uh, marched through town and invaded saloons and and insisted that legislatures uh, make uh, states dry, and they succeeded. Many states were dry. Uh, And finally, of course, they succeeded with the 18th Amendment that meant that alcohol wouldn't be sold in the United States. But this all came from having given women a a place as being man's moral superior not having uh, male appetites and and having the obligation to teach her sons to be better
0: and what's interesting about that there was a kind of a reversal of prior centuries exactly. where women were considered they were lustful and they were not to be trusted. They were not trustworthy. They were conniving. They were deceiving. They were, they were not morally superior. They were easily prone to be deceived and, you know, dragged off by the devil. And, uh, as witches. So, yeah, witch right. So there's a, there is a reversal there. I think it's really very interesting. So I want to ask now is, can claiming womanhood in any way be subversive? or is it always defined by men?
1: Well, I, I think that I, I talk a lot in, in the book about who holds the megaphone. And of course, when when this country was first formed, it was ministers and magistrates who were holding the megaphone. They were the ones who were making the laws. They were the ones on, who, who decided what woman was. Eventually, of course, the megaphone spread to uh to women as well as as men and now we have social media where anyone who wants to hold a megaphone can hold the the megaphone and i think more and more women have been redefining what woman ought to be just for a few examples um thomas jefferson said that um, a woman uh, an american woman does not want to uh muddle her head with politics as opposed to french women during the revolution who butted in where women should not be butting in and he was praising american women for not wanting to bother with with politics they know their roles they uh, soothe their husbands when they come home from political debates i i just loved watching president biden's state of the union address and looking over his shoulder and seeing there on the podium, the vice president of the United States and the speaker of the house for the first time in history to women. So, so much for women don't want to muddle their head in politics. The pundits also talked about uh, a woman has no uh, sexual drive of her own, but a good woman um, is responsive to the conjugal bed, of course, but outside of that. Uh, she she uh, doesn't um, initiate uh, sexuality. I I loved the recent uh, video by uh, Cardi B and Megan The Stallion, the WAP video, which was so sexual and made it so clear that women uh, have their own demands and want their own demands filled, and it has nothing to do with with uh, satisfying men but rather satisfying themselves or uh, another um, uh, uh, bit of punditry of, of the 19th century about uh, woman's um, delicacy she's pale and gentle the ideal um, woman hardly gets up off the couch uh, certainly true of the middle class ideal woman I I loved um, Megan Rapinoe's stance when she uh, Megan Rapinoe, of course, the soccer player, when she had victories over the French soccer team, and she stood out on the uh, soccer field with her arms outspread, as one journalist said, like Russell Crowe in *The Gladiator*. <laughs> and what Megan Rapinoe said is that she was speaking for all women. No apologies no caveats she said own your space take your space and it it was just such a a terrific image that was so counter to the 19th century image of the ideal woman or not such a happy image um, the the older ideal that woman is uh, gentle that woman is shoes violence i was looking recently at um uh, an image of Marjorie Taylor Green when she was running for office. Just a terrible campaign ad of herself caressing a long gun painted towards, uh, pointed towards um, three images, pictures of three of the women of the squad, um, Alexandria Octavio Cortez, Ilan Omar, and Rashida Talib, and um, underneath, Uh, a caption about how the squad had a lot to worry about, but just the implication there of, you know, of of the violence of the willingness to employ violence as a statement of who one is. So all of these um, notions that have come down to us through the centuries of, of who women should be, um, I I think have been really um, reversed by women yet it's certainly been true that that we go back to the default concept in difficult times i'm thinking even of what happened so recently with uh, with covid women were in the labor force in huge numbers most american adult women were working in 2019 and then covid hit and of course it wasn't the the husbands who stayed home with the kids. It was the wives who stayed home with the kids. Um, it wasn't the husband who was responsible for tutoring the child when the child couldn't go to school. It was the mother who had that responsibility for the most part. And I'm, I'm well aware that there are many exceptions, but for the most part, I think it was women who, who defaulted to the old role. It seems to me
0: like women, um, women have changed much more than men have. Uh, it, you know, uh, so it's it's creating a lot of tension. Uh, let me ask you something else. Simone de Beauvoir was, uh, she uh, really uh, railed against imposed femininity. Okay, this whole package of traits and, Ways of being and dressing. She, but she also didn't. She also believed that uh, true freedom for women would come when women could choose femininity as a way of self-fashioning and not it being imposed on them. So today we've got a lot of self-fashioning uh, in our society in multiple ways, not just femininity, but whatever people are, are creating. Their own identities and their own sense of self, and how they dress, and how they want to be in the world. So, within that, the paradigm that we have today, can femininity still be
1: a choice? That, that's a good question. I'm happy you you introduced it by talking about Simone de Beauvoir. What my book is about, essentially, is something else that Simone de Beauvoir said, and that is that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. That is, one is socialized to be a woman. But I, I think your your point about femininity being a choice is is an excellent one, and I see now how the choices have expanded since I was a young woman. I I became an administrator in the 1970s and there were absolutely no role models in college administration for women. I had to figure out how to be, how to dress. And what I knew is that men were tailored and a woman administrator needed to be tailored. And so, you know, I never wore men's clothes, but I wore a very tailored suit. And when pantsuits came in, I wore pantsuits because that was the closest to, to the way men look. I love it now that that there are college administrators who have long hair and, and have any kind of frock they want to have. <laughs> that would have been impossible, I think, in the 1970s when we were looking so hard for a way for how to be. And now we can wear tailored suits. We can um, we can uh, dress entirely, uh, we can wear high heels, we can wear a face full of makeup or no makeup at all. So I, I think that's progress, that that we have really managed to move into a space where there's no one way how woman has to look.
0: So let me ask you uh, about Black women. What do you think Black women have contributed to redefining or defining what woman means.
1: I, I look a lot at, at the role of black women in the United States, beginning with um, how black women, enslaved women, were annulled as women during the era of slavery. Everything that meant woman to, to the guys with the megaphone enslaved women were not permitted to be. They weren't permitted to be uh, fragile, as woman was supposed to be. They weren't permitted to to be mothers. They were forced to have children, but motherhood was often denied them. Their children could be auctioned off uh, after the children were a certain age. They weren't permitted to be sexually modest as a woman was supposed to be because that, that was taken away from them by, by uh, enslavers. It was so interesting to me to discover that um, when a, a black middle class was established, um, many of the women of the black middle class wanted to model themselves after what Evelyn Higginbottom, a a terrific Black historian, has called the politics of respectability. And so, for instance, um, I talk about um, a a Black social reformer, a middle-class woman who had actually been born into slavery, uh, Victoria Earl Matthews, um, who began uh, a a home for, uh, she lived in the North, and she began a home for uh, young black women who came from the South to the North. She called it um, the White Rose Home for Working Class Negro Girls. And she said she was calling it White Rose to remind these working class Negro girls, quote unquote, um, that like a white rose, they should be pure. Uh, they should have goodness. That is, she was so worried about their meeting these ideals of the politics of respectability. In the in the 20th century, I, I think that black women contributed something that has been so crucial, not only to the women's movement, but also to the way we think of as socia- of social movements. And that is, um, the uh, both the middle class women's movement started by betty friedan and the national organization for women and the radical um women's movement started by people like shulamith firestone and uh and coat both of those uh, uh streams of feminism were very interested in um uh, one subject, and that is the condition of woman and and how to improve the condition of woman. What Black women were saying in groups like the Combahee River Collective, for instance, is that we're concerned about the condition of woman, but we're also concerned about race. We're also concerned about the condition of Black men. And I think that that groups like the Combahee Women's Collective were the first to really understand the notion of intersectionality. That is to say, um, there's more to it than fighting just to improve the condition of of women. There's also the issue of class. There's the issue of race. And I, I think that was a way of understanding Feminism that uh, was brought into the movement by black women specifically.
0: Right, because uh, Betty Friedan uh, was trying to get uh, white women out of the kitchen. Into the workforce, and black women were already in the workforce. Exactly so, and they're yeah. and they're going. Yeah. Oh wow, you're really oppressed. You know, you got dishpan hands. Right. And, <laughs> and
1: Betty Friedan wanted to get women off the pedestal, and black women were saying, "We've never been on the pedestals." Yeah, so.
0: that we'd love to be on the pedestal for a day. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I, it's it's there's some real deep contradictions. Okay, I'm going to get into some things here that are are really uh, contentious in our culture today, but but I've read some reviews of your work, and I think it's appropriate to discuss it. Um, Anyway, feminism, I believe, was originally based on undoing the negative meanings and restrictions that were connected to the female body. Women were women because they had female bodies. But the transgenderism uh, has come along. And some feminists are saying that they're upending feminism, that transgenderism is erasing women uh, because the whole idea of feminism was based on bodies, this difference that then you layer on it, you know, on top of that, you layer all kinds of things on top of it reproduction, pregnancy, women get pregnant, females get pregnant. And therefore, all the maternal stuff comes in, all the all everything. So, uh, so is feminism and transgenderism, in some ways, at cro- at crossways.
1: And you know, I, I think it's a very complex issue, and I I want to be nuanced about it, but. I think that the trans movement and the gender non-binary movement has really made a, a huge contribution to to the notions of of gender and woman. Kinsey had a a scale that went from zero to six uh, that measured sexuality, and what he was saying is that um, zero meant that one was absolutely heterosexual, and six meant that one was absolutely homosexual. But there were a lot of people who were ones and twos and threes and fours and fives. That is, sexuality was not as simple as homosexuality and heterosexuality. I think what we need is a gender scale as well. Um, Zero being absolutely masculine and six being absolutely feminine. And I think that there's a lot in between. Most of us would say we were ones or twos or fives or or fours or threes or whatever. And I think that the trans movement and particularly the gender non-binary movement has contributed to that to make us understand that that, of course, it's nonsense to believe that one is born a woman, as as uh, Simone de Beauvoir told us in the nineteen forties, it's much more complicated than than that. You're you're born female, but you become whatever. Um, and I I I think that that we now understand through non-binary people that that it's not as simple as zero and six. It's not as simple as just total male or total female. And it's influenced a good deal of the population. Um, there was a, a 2019 Pew uh, Research poll that asked uh, uh, men of Gen Z uh, and women of Gen Z, that is uh, teenagers and people in their early 20s, um, asked men, uh, how do, do you feel absolutely masculine? Only one fourth of the men said that they were they identified as being absolutely masculine, and only one fifth of the women polled said that they identified as being absolutely feminine. That is, their their point was that they were somewhere else on this hypothetical scale that I've suggested that went from zero to six.
0: Well, you know, you know, feminism has was. And the second wave feminism, at least, was very much about the sex-gender distinction. And it seems like we're not really talking about sex distinction anymore. It's most about gender. But we're still holding on to this what is masculine, what is feminine. You know, like if you take nurturance, that's considered a feminine. Why? Why is not nurturance a masculine? Why does it have to be attached to a feminine ideal? So I have a problem with these Feminine, masculine categories. That seems to me is what tr- transgenderism is building on, and I think uh, talking about fluidity. Yes, it's, but you why know, do we? I, I, co- think
1: that, I, I think that even trans people would would say it's much more complicated than that. I, I did a very interesting interview with a trans woman who who told me that that she knew she was a woman. She had been. Uh, before uh, her transition she had been uh, a gay man she said and she knew always that she was a woman it wasn't satisfactory to her to be a gay man and i asked h- how she knew that and she said because um even as a child i was more nurturing i was more gentle than men were supposed to be and it, that's exactly the the point that, yep. that right you it- made but i yes, i think that, that can be that can be a that can be a man. I don't see why that is a why that's a it, woman of course it can, but I think even um uh, trans people are many of them are understanding that now um i I talk in the book about um several trans people who um uh, uh trans women who uh now say that they're butch lesbians, which in some ways seems. Uh, rather mind-boggling. Um, it, it's kind hard to get your mind around it. Yes, exactly. And and one of them uh, joked that um, he could hardly wait to. She, I'm sorry, she could hardly wait to get breasts so she could bind them like butch lesbians used to. I, I think I think the person was joking, but the whole point was it if. If this trans woman feels like a woman and calls herself a lesbian but is also butch, that's become within the realm of possibilities, certainly. Self-fashioning.
0: self-fashioning.
1: Yes, and I, I think that that we're coming to see gender in those terms, that, that gender is self-fashioning. It's something that, that we can choose or that we become. Um and that there's a huge spectrum it's not as simple as man and woman,
0: so uh, you know again some some feminists, particularly a lot some lesbian feminists believe that transgenderism slowly erases them as women they're lesbians, but they feel they're women they're still women who love women uh, so do you? Do you, what do you say to that?
1: <laughs> well, what, what someone else does doesn't erase me in any way. So, you know, I, 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 I don't quite understand that article uh, that argument that, that a transgender person erases me as, as anything. I, I think the transgender person lives her life or his life. Okay, how, Here's an example how it has of- to be lived.
0: Here's an example, which is sort of a language we've got. We're dealing a lot with language around gender, right? When you say when uh, we say "pregnant person," well, only women or females females get pregnant. So it's a way that erases something when you say "pregnant person."
1: Yeah, I, I can understand that that argument, but of course there are trans men who are capable of getting pregnant. And um, I'm not sure how you would describe a trans man who is pregnant other than a pregnant person. You wouldn't say that he was a pregnant woman.
0: Okay. So, all right. So I think we already talked about, yeah, I have a problem with the reification of culturally defined masculine and feminine characteristics of just, we keep, and it happens just in the general culture, right? Because it seems to me there's a lot of hyper-masculinity performed and a lot of hyper-femininity performed, particularly in media. I mean, it's just over the top. You know, uh, men who are just so buff and tough and aggressive and women who are just, you know, just sexuality all over the place with makeup and hair and drives me crazy because I think that that is, it seems like it's so much like caricatures.
1: But what I find of, so interesting is that women now are saying, as I alluded to earlier, that I could have makeup and hair, and yet I could be hard driving and I could be brilliant yeah. and I could have a powerful job. And there's, there is so much more expansion of what right. it means to, be a woman or what it means to be a man. And I can only look at that as a positive thing, that that we have so many more choices now.
0: Do you think that uh, women today uh, are more confused about what is expected of them as women if they choose to be women? (laughs) You know, you choose to be a woman and then you fashion yourself. What... What are you going to fashion yourself into? Um, and is it possible? Is, impo- is it possible to even escape um, all the cultural
1: noise to really find your authentic uh, person? I, I think the choices are just so plentiful now, certainly compared to what they were in the 20th century, particularly in the mid 20th century i i think that that young people have such opportunities to figure out who they want to be and it's not limited by the sex which they were assigned at birth and that that seems to me to be such an exciting interesting place to to be i often think that i would love to do it all over again to instead <laughs> of having grown up in the 1950s to be able to grow up now and the choices are, are mind boggling compared to what they had been.
0: Do you feel like it's, uh, you know, sometimes we have too many choices, you know, I'll eat in cereal boxes, you know, <laughs> you go to the store and there's a hundred types of cereal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do you think that that I think some people relish that
1: there's a hundred types of series.
0: Right. A lot of people do. You know, I'm the kind of always buy the same box because (laughs) I don't even want to look at the other boxes because then I get confused and then I'm going to be there for two hours trying to decide. So do you think that for some people, what you're talking about, the freedom and the choices is very freeing for other people
1: is confusing and disorienting. And, and I, I think people are often tempted to go back to the default meaning of woman. It was really interesting to me in the uh, early uh, part of this millennium, there was something called an opt-out revolution, which got major attention in the media, the New York Times and the television program, 60 Minutes. And what it seemed to be all about was these women who had gotten um, wonderful educations, there, there was a, a huge article in the New York Times about um, these women who had gotten their law degrees from Princeton and Yale and Harvard, and they uh, some of them made partner in their law firms, and it was a circle of, of women friends. And then they all decided that's enough of that. What they wanted to do was uh, have kids, raise a family, be housewives. One of the women is quoted in the New York Times in an article that I discuss in my book, quoted as saying, "We can now admit that we're happy in this place where we where we are wives and mothers and caregivers." I think it's natural to woman. From my perspective, it was a huge return to what things had been like in the 1950s when I was growing up, um, but it it was it was sort of a, a default return to realizing that there's huge pressure if you're out in the work world and child care is a problem. And how are you going to do, as Arlie Hochschild described it in her book, The Second Shift, how are you going to do a second shift? That is, have a high-pressure job and then come home and be responsible for making dinner and, and getting the kids to bed and And I think they decided that they weren't going to bother with that complication. Well,
0: Well, part of the, you know, I I hear what you're saying. And part of the problem is that our society is very hostile to uh, parenting. Uh, It's hostile to family or private life. Uh, You know, the corporate capitalist system wants to just, you know, take you all in and own you. And it really squeezes out, for both men and women, uh, any kind of healthy domestic life. So people find themselves in this, you know, terrible choice of, do I have to give up everything for my job? That's the first thing. Second thing is longevity. Uh, You know, we're living longer, and you can have two or three careers in a lifetime, and a lot of people do. So it's, you know, women can, or men, both men and women can devote 20 years to raising a family, and then they still got another 40 years where they can, you know, pursue other things. Yes. So I'm kind of sympathetic to those women because the pressure uh, of having, you know, a corporate job or a high power job today is just, it's inhumane for both men and women.
1: Yes. And and the pressure of the second shift just exacerbates that that feeling right. that this is too much. I can't I can't right. do everything.
0: So on an individual level it's very very understandable um why people make those kinds of choices. Yes. And we just need to, you know we need to change the way we work, both men and women.
1: Yes, so And that- we need to change the way we've conceived of childcare. right oh totally it's uh, everything is just
0: stacked against a woman staying in the game and if you if you read the statistics women who go uh, become executives of big corporations there are not many a lot of them most of them are not are either childless or only have one child because
1: or as um as the book lean in which uh was extremely successful when it Came out several years ago and, and became controversial. But as Cheryl Sandberg suggests in that book, you have to make your partner a real partner at home too. Right. Uh, the her, her point was that that marriages are better if if husbands do half the housework and wives bring in half the income. Uh, if if there's a real partnership. Right, and that goes back
0: all the way to Woolstonecraft. Yes. <laughs> so we could write a book called "Man: How He Has Not Changed."
1: Because, you know, because- what, what, what's hopeful is that uh, again, it, it was the uh, uh, Pew Research uh, poll that shows that men are beginning to change, not rapidly enough, perhaps, but they're doing much more of of the housework, much more of the responsibilities around the house than they used to do. When Arlie Hochschild wrote her wonderful book, The Second Shift, in 1989, her point was that a woman comes home and she does everything around the house, and the husband's contribution is to walk the dog and fix the car, and that's it. And more recent polls have shown that men are spending much more time in duties around the house than they used to in the past. So that's certainly a movement in the right direction.
0: Well, let me ask you, uh, what would you like your readers to take away from your book?
1: That um, progress is not linear, that we could easily go back to the way things were that in times of stress like the Depression or post-World War II when people wanted things to return to normalcy or um, the 1980s when uh, uh, women were realizing that they were doing the second shift and it was much too much, um, we return to a default position of woman, and it can happen again. We have to be vigilant if we don't like that default position and we have to find ways to uh, to see to it that that doesn't happen and one way is of course universal child care uh, so that women don't have to worry about uh, how they're going to take care of their kids if they're out in the workforce
0: well thank you so much Dr. Federman and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of new books and gender studies This is your host, Lillian Barger.